This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. It's the Times Red Box we're calling it, isn't it? One, two, three, four. Trip back in time. It is. Oh, wait for that bloody car to... uh... Foreign Secretary? How's that for level? Listen, it's now properly raining, so let's go back inside. Wait, we're going to do levels. Uh, Grant, what did you have for breakfast? So I'll, just do, I'll do the, the podcast one first, so that's done then. I confess I did pop into the pub. I hate karaoke almost as much as I hate cats. Uh, ba, 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 ba. That's wrong, isn't it? <laughs> I've done it. I knew I was going to feel it. <laughs> and just so we do, it doesn't sort of turn into a melange of it all being the same. So you just start by uh, saying your name and how many budgets you did. We've just come through security, but we've basically got the view of Downing Street here, roughly what people from the street can see. But don't just say your own team, because that's boring. <laughs> Are we recording? <coughs> if you enjoy listening to Times journalists talking about politics, but would like to do it while it's sea, you're in luck. It's okay. Yeah. And what? Sorry, I've, got, I've got to fix the mic. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Well, we can sorry. start the whole bloody question. <laughs> <again. Is he laughs> I do it. I'll do it so it sort of ends, and then you can do a bit of twiddly twiddly, and then go into that. Yeah. Sounds great. Whenever you're ready, we're yeah. happy. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley and this is the last episode of the podcast in this form. For reasons I don't still totally understand, they're going to let us do this but on the radio. When Times Radio launches next week on Monday, June the 29th, I'll be doing the politics show Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. You'll be able to listen to Times Radio for free. You can download the app now from the App Store, wherever you get your apps from. You can listen at times.radio on your smart speaker or retune your DAB radio from next week, where it'll be just like the podcast, but then on the radio, and the podcast will be the best bits from the radio show. Now then, just before we get stuck in, I need your help. When my Times Radio show launches from next week, I've got a quiz and I need people to play the quiz. And this is where you hopefully will come in. The quiz is called Can You Get to Number 10? It's basically a general knowledge quiz. Ten questions, each loosely connected to a cabinet job. So get the first question right. You become our minister without portfolio. You rise through the ranks through culture and transport and education and health. 
If you get to number 10 and you get number 10 right, you become our show Prime Minister. So if you'd like to be on the show from next week, email me, matt.chorley at times.radio. Tell me who you are, where you are, what you do and why you should come on the radio for the chance to win absolutely nothing apart from the admiration and envy of your friends. That's all we need. I know that you will come to my rescue and help me out with this. If you want to be a part of it, matt.chorley at times.radio. And hopefully we'll be speaking in the next week or so. Right. What we thought we'd do in this episode is take a look back over more than four years of doing this. Hello and welcome to the Opinion Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, the new host and new editor of Red Box. On the panel this week, we're joined by Time. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley, and you're listening to the all-new Times Red Box podcast, just like the Opinion Podcast, but with a new logo. On the panel today, we've so got... So it's back in January 2016 when I took over what was then called the Opinion Podcast, and then I rebranded it, the Red Box Podcast, but it stayed much the same. And being a nice, grown-up, mature podcast from the Times of London... We're going to start with the swearing. It only took two or three weeks of me being in the chair before we had our first swear on the podcast. And of course, it was from Giles Corran. Yeah, it's also being very right wing is, uh, is good with the ladies. I think it, uh, it was uh, PJ O'Rourke. Uh, so you say this is what you like about Nazis, but what woman ever dreamt? Dressed as a liberal, <laughs> you're going to find that a very interesting moment in this podcast. Is that, is that the bit? Is that by the way, podcast listeners, the bit before me has just been edited out. Can I just like, do it without? Yes, let's do it without. Yeah, and um, the bit after me has just been edited out. <laughs> then, of course, there was the time that I regaled the panel with the story of how my wife once asked Emily Thornberry how she deals with critics, and she replied. But without doubt, the most sweary episode of the podcast we've ever done was the Christmas quiz from 2018. Uh, we still don't know what Brexit means, but we do know by now that whatever happens, we are all probably totally... F- now, of course, we need to talk about Brexit. I tried to ban it from some episodes of the podcast because it got quite boring, but it was interesting at the beginning, that night in June 2016, when Britain voted to leave the EU. Just digest that for a moment. Whether you're in favour or against, few people actually thought it would happen. But from an opinion poll last night declaring that Remain would win at 10 o'clock to Britain backing Brexit by four in the morning with 51.8% of the vote, uh, it's been quite a night. We were warned of the consequences of a leave vote and they've been immediate and dramatic. The stock market's in turmoil. The pound is at a 30-year low against the dollar. But this is a political crisis too. Boris Johnson and Michael Gove now face having to actually implement the Brexit they campaigned for. Nigel Farage embarks on a never-ending victory lap. Nicola Sturgeon demands a second vote on Scottish independence. There's a vote of no confidence has been issued against Jeremy Corbyn. But the most significant event of the day so far came when David Cameron emerged from number 10 with his wife, Samantha, by his side, to deliver a long-awaited statement on his humiliating defeat. For the original Opinion podcast, the host was Tim Montgomery, and we invited him back onto the Red Box podcast uh, a week or so after the Brexit results. Normally, when former hosts rejoin an old show, they're welcomed back with open arms. That isn't quite what happened when he locked horns with Phil Collins, the Times columnist, over the issue of Brexit. But the, the, the doom and the gloom in the Times at the moment is extraordinarily deep. But, you know, there's plenty of good options um, ahead of this. What's the question in the past 24 hours? We've just escaped from what William Hague once described as it would be a burning building with no exit. No, that was the euro. That was the euro. That was that the euro. The euro. We were never we, joined the euro, so we did not if escape I can from get that. Just a word well, say something that's true then. Don't just make things up. Well, if I'm allowed to develop a point, I might be able to explain. Well, develop one which is true. 
Now, if you think that was awkward, we weren't in our normal studio, in a very small corridor of a studio with me sitting at the end of the table, Tim directly in front of me facing the wall and Phil next to him. The whole thing was really much more awkward than it really comes across on that clip. I got a much warmer welcome, it has to be said, when I toddled off to Shoreditch to meet a political powerhouse, a former advisor to the Treasury, a former shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, to ask him how he was getting on doing the tango. Can you believe that here we are with me wearing felt-soled dancing shoes and, um, and leisure wear talking to the dance studio? <laughs> it's, um, uh, the funny thing is we just popped out for lunch. If I'd gone in in a suit, I'd have had people um, wanting to talk politics, but I walk in wearing this get-up and um, people just think it's another crazy creative from Shoreditch. So back in 2016, we thought that's as mad as politics was going to get. Brexit happened, Ed Balls was on Strictly, and then this happened. Hello and welcome to this special Red Box podcast from The Times, broadcast live on Facebook. I'm Matt Shirley. It's Wednesday, October the 9th, 2016, the day the world awoke to the news that Donald Trump, Donald Trump, has been elected President of the United States of America. Barack Obama has congratulated him, invited the White House uh, on Thursday. President Putin said he hopes to take... Uh, U.S. relations out of their critical condition here in Britain. Of course, Trump getting elected meant that we had even more reasons to invite our good friend Rory Bremner onto the podcast. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast. Nobody respects it more than me. So beautiful, beautiful people, beautiful views. So while America was coming to terms with the emergence of President Trump, closer to home, we were focusing on our own blonde political bombshell. There was a market store in Rumford Market, um, which we took Boris to during the first campaign, and he stopped an underwear stall, which had some crocodile snickers kind of not far from his head. And I, I can't remember if it was me or my, my previous business partner, who's now at number 10. One of us did kick him rather hard in the shins a few times, to which he started to look around and kind of pull a face. Move, we said, move. And then eventually we said, above your head. And he went, oh, and it was kind of move. And he suddenly did realise why he needed to. It was in that episode that I got to retell one of my favourite political stories of the last four and a half years of being at the time. While other people do the scoops that matter. I do the scoops that people are interested in. It was the Nick Clegg music video. I'd been to a Lib Dem leaving party where I'd picked up this amazing piece of information that during the 2015 election campaign, Nick Clegg had recreated scene by scene the music video for Carly Rae Jepsen's I Really Like You, which actually stars Tom Hanks. Nick Clegg took the part of Tom Hanks. It cost almost £8,000 pounds of party funds. The idea was that the Lib Dems are going to go viral. It's still never been released. I know the people who have got hold of a copy and I will eventually, one day, I'm going to force them to release it. I had colleagues that stopped me from uh, making it public. Uh, we'd love, we'd love that to be public. Yeah, I know, I know that you would. <laughs> I know that you would. How, how much has Nick Clegg offered to pay you to make sure that never comes out? Now, my impeccable Westminster sources also led me to believe that I was safe to go on holiday. A senior government source told me that my break at Disneyland in Florida was going to be safe. So needless to say, this happened. So this morning, Theresa May uh, announced a snap election is going to take place on June the 8th. Jeremy Corbyn has thrown his backing behind uh, this move, so it looks like it's on. That wasn't the only episode of the podcast I had to skip. Hello? I'm on the train. 
Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley, stuck on a train, unable to get into the studio to record this week's podcast. The first time this has happened in three and a half years and more than 200 episodes. I don't know what they're going to say either, so let's sit back and listen to it together. Now, in my absence, my colleagues managed to offend most of the North by being dismissive of anything basically uh, outside London, which led me to go to the North of England uh, to meet Jen Williams from the Manchester Evening News to show that we did understand what was happening in the North and concerns about public transport. So, of course, we did the podcast on a bus. So, Jen, what bus are we on? Uh, we're on the 140 Magic Bus <coughs> to Didsbury. What makes it magic? It's cheap. Oh, okay. Yeah, it used to be a quid. Well, I think it might be two pounds, actually. I think it just I think paid two pounds. Yeah, yeah. You have paid for me because I had no change <laughs> getting on the bus. What you don't know, having listened to that episode of Jen and I on a bus, is while we were on the bus back into central Manchester, word came through that the Tory party conference had gone into lockdown. We were convinced we were missing a massive story, some huge security alert engulfing basically the entire cabinet inside the Tory party conference, only for it to turn out that the Tory MP Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown had got into a bit of a kerfuffle uh, trying to get his wife into the international lounge. There was what was later described as a minor altercation and a small misunderstanding and a storm in a teacup. But for a few minutes, Jen and I were sat on the bus convinced we were missing a massive story because we'd been basically larking about on a bus. It wasn't all mucking about on buses, though. Sometimes we did proper episodes, mini documentaries where we dusted off the piano music to do a proper job. The first of these was back in the spring of 2017, where I spoke to some of the senior figures from the new Labour victory 20 years earlier about how they went about winning. You're never ready when you come straight in yeah. off the back of um, 18 years of opposition. In that sense, you're, you're never ready. And... You know, there is nothing really that prepares you quite for that if you haven't been in that position before. Yeah, I, I, I was, I mean, frightened is perhaps not the right word, but I was somewhat overawed, yeah. I mean, I think I was the, well, one of the very few sober people around that night. <laughs> and I was, was very sober and very, very conscious of the responsibility. Came together can I, can I just that? say about John, it's not as if he was being left out. Everyone had their skills. Everyone had their sort of unique selling point, something, some gap that they would fill in the contribution they made to the campaign, and John was one of them. You know, was John best suited and best qualified to be, you know, part of the sort of central strategic command? No. But did he do an enormous lot else, uh, you know, to bring... Uh, to the campaign. It was hastily renamed, though, Lessons in a Landslide, when a different party leader suddenly found themselves trying to shore up a huge poll lead and trying not to lose it. Uh, Tony Blair did a better job of hanging on to his than Theresa May did. Perhaps she should have listened to this episode. So during the 2017 election campaign, we'd obviously invited the best The Times and The Sunday Times had to offer in terms of political analysis. What they knew, which is what I knew, that people in Downing Street listened to the podcast. So if they were stirring things up a bit, perhaps by being rude about the Prime Minister, they knew exactly who was listening. In particular, Sam Coates from The Times, Tim Shipman from The Sunday Times, gradually winding up their contacts in Downing Street. 
I think what is significant about the social care U-turn is that we saw all of Theresa May's flaws, and there's no politician without flaws, but we saw them all in one episode. (laughs) This was a policy that was drawn up with a very, very small number of people. As far as we understand, it was Nick Timothy's idea. He over, he rode roughshod over even Downing Street's own head of policy when pushing this idea through. It was inserted in the manifesto at the last time, with all, uh, at the last minute with almost no consultation. So that's flaw number one that people know is already there in this episode. Uh, then she came out and uh, uh, and said that uh, the fact that it was controversial was a sign of her strength uh, and uh, people worried slightly, but, but went with it because we're in an election campaign. Then she committed a U-turn that arguably um, involved her team misreading the views of lots and lots of Conservative candidates who didn't think that she needed to U-turn. Maybe there are factors that we don't know about, but that was certainly my perception calling around the country. So did her team, very small team, misread what was going on? And then she performed absolutely appallingly like a sort of robot, the Maybot, in front of the, in front of the, in front of the television cameras. We saw all the flaws That's in one... two of you on the death list. <laughs> I will drag you down, Tim, don't worry. But it turned out it wasn't us on the death list. It was Theresa May's majority. Some of us had tried to point out in the weeks leading up to the election that maybe she wasn't that good. But not everyone seemed to notice, at least until election night. I just really distinctly remember being in the Times newsroom when that exit poll came through and just laughing my head off. We are saying the Conservatives are on 314. That is down from the 314. The hubris of her team, the arrogance of the team around her, were convinced that they could basically treat everyone how they liked because they are going to get this massive majority. And instead of going to bed, which is what I was supposed to do, and then get up and write bed box in the morning, I basically did various bits of media, went to several different parties, went back to the hotel opposite the Times office, where, as I was going to bed, my colleagues who'd been writing the paper till the early hours, they were emerging from the office at the same time. And they all went back to my hotel room where we drank a lot of beer. They went to bed and then I realised it was time for me to go and write Red Box. So I basically had a shower and went into the office. But I wrote the Red Box email and then I hosted the podcast the morning after the election result where there was a little bit of giddiness. This is not what we expected. We've got a hung parliament, still one more seat to go. Who won? It seems like everyone lost. One of the great things about the podcast is being able to get out and about. So we've done the podcast all over the country, but also to be able to sit down and have a long chat with politicians who sometimes you only see on the TV or radio for sort of three or four minutes. One of the earliest that we did was with Angela Rayner at the Labour Party conference in 2017, where she, I think for maybe the first time since she joined the Labour front bench, she opened up properly about her just incredible backstory. And we'd go to school, me and my brother and sister, and we'd be really hungry, genuinely. You know, it is bad. I was looking at the clock at lesson two, waiting to get to lunchtime. And in fact, um, one of the papers had asked me for the GCSE um, results. He'd asked me for a, a picture of myself from school and I asked my mum and dad if he got a picture of me from school and the only picture my dad had was my school dinner token that he still carried and it was the one that the school took that was on my picture to give me a free school dinner and I remember um, you know feeling that hungry and feeling you know that you know life was tough it was pretty tough I used to go around my friends houses and I'd say ask your mum and dad if they'll let me stay for tea 
And I'd, I'd just love Sunday dinner because we never got Sunday dinner in our house. And, you know, and I'd ask the next day and my mate would say, no, you can't really. My mum said, no, you were here yesterday. And I'd sit on the curb outside waiting for them to come back out after they've had dinner. It wasn't all serious stuff, though. Each week on a normal episode, and increasingly as time went on, we did fewer and fewer of these, but we'd get three Times columnists or reporters in a room and they could pick any subject they wanted to cover. It might be Brexit, it might be law and order, benefit cuts, education reform. Or, in the case of David Aronovich, uh, one day in early 2018, one of the leading Times columnists, one of the great voices of the left in political commentary, came on the podcast to complain about Marvel films. And it leaves me all completely cold. These are kids' movies that infantilised adults spend fortunes making, discussing or going to see. They have nearly no redeeming features. Actually, I wrote that earlier. Actually, they have no redeeming features. <laughs> so stop it already. <laughs> right, so, so have you seen Black Panther? No. <laughs> well, what Excellent. would be the point of my saying that these are ridiculous infantilised well, movies may, that may, no you, one should go and see and then I go and see them? You may right. have done some, done some research. It wasn't just Marvel films, though. He had a big rant about bay windows. There was a problem with bay windows. Uh, and he even got cross right at the beginning of every episode, just to get the levels right, we asked people what they had for breakfast. And even that wound him up. I think that asking someone what they had for breakfast is the height of intrusion. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never liked it as a question. And I think it's insulting if you ask me now. Now, of all the episodes we've done over the past four and a bit years, the one that sticks in my mind where I completely lost it and couldn't stop laughing was one that we did on new political parties. Lucy Fisher from The Times had dug out some research showing the number of new parties that had registered with the Electoral Commission. It was at a time when everyone was starting a new centrist party or whatever. But one party in particular, the Democrats and Veterans Party, we were discussing on the episode with Daniel Oxley, who was a co-founder of the party. We began by discussing the fact that the Democrats and veterans, the DV party, people had pointed out that DV in medical terms stands for diarrhoea and vomiting, uh, which they'd got round by saying that everyone was sick of uh, politics as usual. I also pointed out that the leader of the DV party was Jonathan Rees-Evans, who'd previously run to be the leader of UKIP and was probably best known by some for claiming that his horse had been raped by a gay donkey. Daniel picked me up on this to point out that it was only an attempted rape. And in fact, the gay donkey had not actually achieved his act. The whole thing got even sillier, though, when I pointed out that the logo of the Democrat and Veterans Party featured a donkey. Well, it's, it's an ambiguous... It's a different donkey. It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's, an, it's, ambiguous. it's an ambiguous It's a bisexual thing. donkey. Um, well, well what, a lot of, what a lot of people have missed is the... I've even had some really literal-minded people saying to me, oh, but that's just ridiculous. Donkeys have hooves. They don't have fingers. How is it holding that little flagpole? But, but, one of the things we've always tried to do on the podcast is take you behind the scenes in politics. And one of our, I think, best-received mini-series was two episodes we did on what life was really like inside Number 10, the history of the building, uh, what was it like to work in Number 10. And we got you to send in questions, to ask your big, pertinent, political questions about what it's like to work in Downing Street. And most of the questions were about where the toilets are. Well, I got quite obsessed with finding new toilets in Downing Street. And with a, a friend of mine who was the Home Affairs Advisor, we had plans to do a sort of coffee table, gatefold, pull-out book. Because in the middle of this book, I imagined there was this one amazing toilet on the way up to the flat uh, in number 10, which was this chrome, horrendous design thing. As if Liberace designed toilets, that would be what the toilet would be like. That was a man's loo, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. Yes, it was. Yes. Women weren't no, supposed no. to be. How I know... I'm glad you've said that, because well, I used to go in there all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I used to... 
I think it's more just what Gandhi was doing. <laughs> exactly. But that is an extraordinary place. And we thought, well, this how did this happen? And we wanted to tell the story. I mean, bizarrely, this book has never yet been published. But if, if there are publishers listening to this podcast and they're interested, can I just say that was my idea? That was, yeah, you've, you've, you've put an annex into my you've, book. You've basically <laughs> copyright. I've heard Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness having a quite important, sensitive conversation in the toilet. Oh. They didn't know I was in there. I, to this day, I can't reveal what they had to say. Were you high, Were you just looking for the, the maker of the toilet for the footnotes of your, your book? What are you doing? I'm just doing a history on the toilet. That's right. It's research. <laughs> You've been in there hours, Phil. We also took you behind the scenes of the election campaign one year on. Tim Shipman brought us this rather graphic description of what it was like to be in Tory HQ when Theresa May saw that it hadn't got according to plan. My favourite quote from a, a senior Tory, if we're allowed to use it, of the atmosphere in their office when it broke was it was like someone had shat in the meringue. <laughs> <laughs> what a very Tory dessert to have chosen. Absolutely, yes. It should have been eaten mess, mm. shouldn't it? I promise we did talk about stuff other than toilets in 2018. But when we had Ben Rhodes, a former advisor to Barack Obama on the podcast, he told us loads of stuff about what Barack Obama thought about Brexit and Boris Johnson. But by far his best story involved the toilet and the Queen. We're in Normandy and it's the height of the Ukraine tensions and it's a D-Day commemoration. And all the leaders are in this special area where they're having lunch. I had actually been out all night the night before because this was the end of the trip and we were done. I had no work to do that day. I was done. So I was like, I have a big night in Paris, you know. And and so I'm out in the staff area and someone comes running, Pete Souza, our photographer, and says, he's talking to Putin. Obama's talking to Putin. And someone had to be there to hear this. So I sprint through this room that I'm not even supposed to be in. I don't know how I didn't get tackled. And I'm the only, you know, it's all foreign leaders. And there's Obama talking to Putin. All the leaders are sitting there. They have their iPhones up taking pictures. And so I go over there so I can hear what they're saying. And they're arguing about Ukraine. And uh, I know this is going to be major media events. can overtake anything. But I'm totally exhausted. And I need to use a restroom. So I find the restroom. And you know when you go to open a door and it doesn't open, you know, and it's kind of, but you can't tell if it's locked. So I push it a few times. And it's like, is it jammed or not? So I'm really like shaking this door hard. And I finally realized like, okay, someone's in there. So I take like two steps back and I'm waiting. And that second door opens and the Queen of England walks out. <laughs> and she, she looks at me like, are you the man who was just shaking the door while I was going to the bathroom? And she kind of fixes her handbag and kind of gives me a stern look and then just moves on. And I'm like, oh God, I hope nobody saw that. Still to come, everything that happened between then and now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The thing that kept happening in 2018 was that I'd end up texting Alex, the producer, to say, I think we need to do another emergency episode. And I would grab whatever microphones I've got in my bag and head into Westminster. And more often than not, the episode would end up being called something along the lines of, what the hell is going on? So Boris Johnson gave us the first what the hell is going on when he resigned. Fast forward to November and we were grabbing the what the hell is going on kit again. This time, Jacob Rees-Mogg was the man of the moment. He was about to call for a vote of no confidence in Theresa May. On the way to record him doing that, we passed Boris Johnson on his own, strolling through the corridors of Parliament. That's politics for you. Are we done? So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. I think what we're doing right, is just step forward. forward for a couple of questions. That there, the sound of Jacob Rees-Mogg posing for photos after launching an Exocet missile into Theresa May's leadership. It took a month before we actually got the confidence vote in mid-December and basically everyone just lost their minds. There will now be a vote of confidence in my leadership of the Conservative Party. I will contest that vote with everything I've got. If she wins, then there is a 12-month period in which no further votes could be held. If she were to lose the vote, she would cease to be leader of the Conservative Party. To change the leader at this point risks undermining our capacity to deliver on the democratic mandate. Her behaviour today is just contemptuous of this parliament and of this person. I think she's going to win, uh, but I don't know by how much. Yes, it's been another one of those extraordinary days in Westminster, the most extraordinary since the last time we did an emergency podcast. Luckily, everything calmed down in 2019. Well, no, of course it didn't. Uh, Within days, Theresa May was recording the biggest parliamentary defeat ever. I'm in the Houses of Parliament on a night when something genuinely historic has happened. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose to the left, 432. But tonight's vote tells us nothing about what it does support. Nothing about how or even if it intends to honour the decision the British people took. It wasn't just cabinet ministers who were walking out. It was Tory MPs, Labour MPs as well. We had the big party split when some Labour MPs and then some Tory MPs broke away to form the independent group. So, Julie, I grabbed my microphone kit and headed over to the press conference where I hoped to grab a few words with Anna Subri. It got put off and put off and put off. And then we were going to do it in the car when she was going to another interview. And then it turned out there was a taxi strike and the streets of London were blocked. So they said, well, will you walk with us across London to get to her next appointment? And in that moment, one of the great Red Box podcast gimmicks were born, walking out with me and a big fluffy microphone. And Anna Subri... Or she just let rip. See, I can now be really rude about some of these people. It's really, I mean, why really to God? I mean, 
a man who makes has made a whole career as, as advanced on pitiful failure after failure and it's like he's going to screw it up and he'll get some other it's a bit like working for the BBC you know know, they do this in the BBC if you're useless they just sort of promote you across the way they don't actually say I'm I'm awfully sorry but you're crap and you're going and after that everyone wants to go walking out with us once the Tory party leadership got up and running I went walking in the rain with Matt Hancock I bought Andrea Leadsom an ice cream Uh, Rory Stewart went walking for us and he didn't um once until I asked him about Michael Gove and there was suddenly quite a lot of stuttering but by far the strangest one of the walking out episodes didn't involve walking at all Jeremy Hunt was happy to do it but felt that going running was slightly more on brand which meant that I had to conduct an interview about Brexit, Donald Trump, his failed business ventures, reform of social care, while huffing and puffing around central London on his daily three-mile run while carrying a backpack with all the recording gear in it, his security detail sort of stopping traffic for us as we went. The whole thing was weird. I had to keep stopping because I was slightly conscious that the whole thing might not sound terribly good. In fact, it sounded a little bit like a sex tape with all the huffing and puffing that was going on. One of the things we did manage to do was we stopped, we paused for breath on the South Bank uh, and I asked him about his relationship with Donald Trump and he revealed he'd been getting tips from the President of the United States. I understand the other side, where they're coming from, work out your leverage and secure a deal that works for you. So just pause for a moment, just uh, on the South Bank so that I can get my breath back. Obviously, you're absolutely fine. Are you coming up on the rails on the Trump popularity stakes? He seems to seems to like Jeremy just as much. Well, I have a, a good rapport with him. And do you think President Trump is at all affected by the protests and Jeremy Corbyn shouting in Whitehall? He notices them. He's not as thick-skinned as everyone says, but he's a very determined guy and he's not afraid to be unpopular if he thinks it's the right thing for America and he's not afraid to take people on as I think Sadiq Khan found to his cost (laughs) when uh, the president arrived. Did he give you any advice about how to win or what to do if you become prime minister? Uh, I didn't ask the question that way but I did have quite long conversations with him last time he came and also a little bit this time on uh, his use of social media and the power of the tweets. So basically we got all the Tory leadership contenders on the podcast except one. Despite my repeated requests to go running with Boris Johnson, assuming that he'd probably be a slightly slower runner than Jeremy Hunt, he wasn't willing to play ball. So we turned to our old friend Rory Bremner again. Let's make a start. Uh, uh, Do you think you're fit, Boris? Yeah, I'm right. I think I could probably probably lose a few pounds. But then that is the... That is the great thing about about Brexit. That after Brexit, I think we will all be we will all be losing uh, a many many pounds. Uh, hang on, sorry, are you recording this? So, yes, no, sir, no, yeah, no, no, I'm no, recording. Don't use that. No, no, don't take that bit off. Take that off. No, well, no, you, you, well, you, well, you, well, no, no, it's no, a podcast. No, I'm sorry, you're not putting that out. That is not. Okay, give me that. Give me that. Give me that. Give me that. Wait, that is not. Just, I've got powerful friends. I've got powerful friends. Do you know know the name Darius Guppy? And so the inevitable happened. Boris Johnson finally became Prime Minister. But one of the things that people never normally talk about is what happens when you get the top job. So in our special episode, What Happens When You Become PM?, we tried to explain what happens when you become PM. I can remember David phoning Sam up and saying... I was was at the table where he said, love, you better get your frock ready. We're going to see the Queen in about a couple of hours. And there was pandemonium. 
A quick trip to Buckingham Palace, which involves kissing of hands and being invited to form a government, and then a moment to gather your thoughts in the short drive down the Mall and Whitehall before delivering your first speech as PM. This speech matters. It's grown in significance. For Margaret Thatcher, quoting Sir Francis of Assisi... Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. That was just a few snatch words to a huddle of cameras. It was easy for Tony Blair. Labour apparatchiks had packed the street with union flag-waving party supporters. A decade later, Gordon Brown took no chances. On the morning he became Prime Minister in 2007, he went into a room in the Treasury with his gatekeeper Sue Nye and spin doctor Damien McBride to practice delivering his speech without notes. Boo! shouted Nye. You're a bad man. Damien McBride got more into it. Why did you sell the gold, Gordon? You ruined my pension. You've got blood on your hands. At this last insult, Brown stopped mid-speech and demanded to know, why is there blood on my hands? Having got a bit of the inside story on what it's like to be Prime Minister, we actually sat down with someone who'd done the job. David Cameron, this time. Do you miss being Prime Minister? Yes, of course. It's the most, you know, incredible opportunity. It was a huge honour to to be able to do that job. I mean, it is completely exhausting, as I put in the book. You you discover a sort of new form of tiredness where you get to the end of the day and you think back and you literally can't even remember what happened at the beginning of the day because in between there have been so many cabinet meetings, emergency meetings, calls with Putin or Obama, parliamentary statements, things you've had to do on the door of number 10, people you've had to meet, that by the end your brain is sort of literally, you can almost feel it sort of frying. Boris Johnson's honeymoon didn't last long, though, and by early September, the wheels were coming off all over the place. It was time to grab the recording kit again and head to Westminster for what ended up being something like a 17-hour day. There was basically chaos everywhere. There were Tory MPs being kicked out. Others were rebelling. Boris Johnson did his first PMQs with genuine speculation that it might have been his last. There were more rebellions and late-night votes, total chaos. Nobody knew how we were going to find a way through it. And it delivered what ended up being, I think, our longest ever episode called A Hard Day's Fight. So that's it. There was a whole day in Westminster. Rather a lot happened. Rather a lot less is clearer. We don't really have a government. We will probably have an election, but we don't know where. We don't know when. But I know we'll vote again some sunny day. (laughs) After a few more weeks of shenanigans, we finally got the general election, which Jeremy Corbyn said he wanted but didn't want to vote for, and Boris Johnson said he didn't want and then demanded. In the end, it was quite boring, the election. You also found it boring. We could tell this because some of you stopped listening to the podcast. In normal times, a political podcast and a general election campaign would be banner from heaven. But no, it was actually quite dull. One of my favourite bits, though, is that I at least got to go home and I went back to Taunton. I'm standing outside uh, what were once the offices of the Taunton Times where I began my journalistic career after finishing my A-levels. It was in this building I learnt the tricks of the trade. Uh, met my now wife and, I'll be honest, often fell asleep in the toilet while amazingly hungover. Just around the corner from here is the multi-storey car park barrier which hit me in the face, sending me to hospital where, while I was being checked out, I missed a phone interview with Funhouse's Pat Sharp. 
And so into 2020, after all the drama of 2019, at least Boris Johnson could kick back and relax. Uh, not quite. He had a reshuffle where he lost his chancellor, which meant Rishi Sunak had to learn how to put together a budget in just a few days. Luckily, he had an episode of the Red Box podcast he could listen to, where we spoke to former chancellors who'd done just that. What I used to do is, you know, stuff it full of stories, leak out a few ourselves. Don't worry, not market sensitive or anything like that. Uh, just to keep the you know the lobby, the the Westminster Village and journalists fed. Newspapers are complete suckers for the handout. <laughs> I mean, I by the way, try, now I edit a newspaper myself. I don't like doing this, and I try and tell my team not to do it. But you know, this kind of story given to the lobby at five in the evening from Number Ten or the Treasury, which they then put on the front page, is very lazy journalism in my view, and chancellors love it. I remember one of our biggest successes was when we had, you know, all sorts of challenges in our budget. We announced a new one-pound coin. I was about, and, I was about to ask you about the one-pound coin. <laughs> that was Everyone lost their money. Everyone went like mad for the one-pound coin. Well, by the way, I think the one-pound coin is very beautiful and lovely. I'm not sure it's the most important thing that happened that year. I suppose we should just touch a bit on the Labour Party. Most of the time I was quite dismissive of Jeremy Corbyn and I turned out to be right. Finally, though, after an apparently never-ending leadership contest, Labour got a new leader. But what do you do when you become leader of the opposition and no one cares? I spoke to William Haig, who'd been there before. And if Keir Starmer were to pick up the phone to you over the weekend and say, William, I was thinking of going on a log flume wearing a baseball cap. <laughs> uh, Absolutely, I'd say don't do it. Although I would say that um, <laughs> these things, they become part of the narrative later, you know, after the event. And again, this can happen in, in, a, in any public job, that if it starts not to go well, whatever photo call you did in the past suddenly starts to look very embarrassing or or many of them can do and so for the last few months instead of doing the podcast in the studio all charging around Westminster with a backpack full of recording equipment I've been doing it from home as we all have been during the coronavirus outbreak one of the lovely things has been the way that you've kept in touch you've suggested ideas we did an episode on the best political films which led to an episode on the best political tv shows you sent in your reasons to be cheerful we tried to reflect the seriousness of the moment while also not battering you with even more grim news and as we emerge out of the pandemic as we return to something resembling more normal politics the cut and thrust of pmqs differing political views both within parties and between them This feels like a great time to take what we've done on the podcast on to Times Radio. So I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who has appeared on the podcast. And there are so many people, people who have been in government, people who are now back in government. Uh, My amazing colleagues on the Times uh, and the Sunday Times who have answered late night text messages saying, please, will you come on tomorrow? I'm sorry that I know this looks like you were my 10th choice. I'm just really disorganised. Please do come on the podcast. And they've done it time and time again. And they've made me think about things in different ways every single week. I also want to say thank you to all of you who have posted lovely reviews on the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen, who've sent me emails to say you got this wrong or you should do that or speak to this person or whatever it might be, because we've only really done it because you were listening and it's been a total joy. I mean, there have been times when it's been stressful. There have been times when I've been perched on the corner of the bed trying to record it in extraordinary circumstances during coronavirus. 
but I've loved doing every minute of it. I can't tell you how excited I am that I'm going to be able to do it on the radio every day on Times Radio when it launches next week. But it's also the last episode to be edited by Alex Jakes, who's been such a brilliant producer for the last four years, who's taken all of the gibberish that I've recorded on my phone, on various recording devices over the last four years, and clipped them up and made them sound as good as they have, to the point that we won an award. We were actually named the news podcast of the year. The one year, there wasn't even a do for us to go and have a beer uh, to celebrate. So a massive thank you to everyone who's appeared on the podcast, everyone who's listened. A massive thank you to Alex in particular for doing such an amazing job. But this isn't the end of anything. This is a new, exciting, oh my God, what are they done? They've given me a radio show. New era uh, for Redbox. You're still going to get all of the same people, the same discussions, probably more often than you're used to on the podcast but it felt like a really nice opportunity to sit back and look at a how mad politics has been but also b what a lot of fun it's been recording it and trying to at least explain it to you uh, over the last four years or if not explain it at least explain why we can't explain it make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the future episodes that are going to come out of my times radio show listen to times radio from next monday june the 29th 6 a.m it starts i'm on from 10 a.m where we're going to be talking about how can we balance the books this time around 10 years after austerity was kicked off by George Osborne. We'll be joined by George Osborne and Alistair Darling, amongst other guests. But for now, my huge thanks to everyone. For me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. I had granola and yoghurt and raspberries. Ooh, I know. Hark at you. (laughs) Welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. What the hell is going on? Statue of a suffragette. Say a more reasonable. Recent. (laughs) More recent campaign. Far more reasonable campaign. Welcome wherever you're listening around the world. Uh, Henry, your task is to try and get the microphone off of Sam. Well, the next one on my list is 1am. There's a big gap. A couple of hours of solid drinking (laughs) before you get into there. In a moment, Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth. But first. Bloody telly started up randomly. Anyway, it was, it was very good. It was a good. It was a good intro. It was a good intro. This one's going to be really good. Okay. Far more importantly, what Sam Coates' trousers tell us about the state of British politics. Time-wise, I haven't heard from you. I seem no, to just bang re- on. Are you just reading a book. No, I mean, well, no. But uh, twenty minutes. We're bang on. Oh, we're bang on. People file out of the main conference hall. Oh, bloody telly's fired up here. I, I try not to wind people up by any oh, yeah. I don't want to become Tony the commentator. And subscribe to your podcast on iTunes or on your Android device. Is that right? That is right. I'll do that again. <laughs> the Queen would have to invite someone to form a government, and if Boris Johnson is not in Parliament... Naturally, we'd get for him. Why is that, that funny? Let me stop laughing at the idea. I mean, could I be any worse...
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.